it is a joy to be here with you, and I want to extend a uh, greeting from my church and John MacArthur, who has said of your pastor, Stephen Davey, he's perhaps the finest expositor in this part of the country. And I thought those were high accolades coming. It's very appropriate. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Perhaps it's where the pages of the Bible are still stuck together. (laughs) Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of this chapter without apology because it's really important that we get some contextual orientation before we drill down into where we're going to look at at the middle section of this chapter. And uh, I don't want us to just parachute in and start shooting without kind of knowing where we are. So follow along as I read in chapter 3. A little orientation as you're turning there. Um, This is Jeremiah the prophet as he's sitting on a hill, perhaps the Mount of Olives, looking into Jerusalem as it's being burned by the Babylonians after he's warned the people for 40 years that this was going to happen. Lamentations 3, 1 reads... I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and made me walk in darkness and not light. Surely against me he's turned his hand repeatedly all the day and caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have not long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. I've become a laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I... I've forgotten happiness. So, I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood, the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. That the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions, they never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then 
he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord will not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint in view of his sins? Christopher Love was a Welshman, a Puritan preacher in the 17th century. He was a hero of mine. My wife and I read his biography, by a fine biography by Don Kistler. Really changed our marriage. It changed our perspective on ministry. It gave us some parameters to look, some dimensions to understand God and his providence in ways that we could have never imagined. Christopher Love was 33 years old when he was coming to the height of his ministry, a flourishing church, a wonderful wife, two children, and she was eight months pregnant with their third. He was arrested under the charge of high treason by the Church of England and the English government. Church of England was not looking kindly at that time on men who preached Christ as the only way of salvation. They wanted some section of that to be vested in the Church of England so they could control the baptisms and the lives of the people who were the inhabitants of London and England to preach the preciousness of Jesus Christ as the supreme object of faith, threaten the civil formalities of the church and the church state. Consequently, for most of the nonconformist Puritans, incarceration, martyrdom, arrest was always an ever-present danger. He was arrested in May of 1651 under the charge of high treason, sentenced to death in a lonely London tower where he awaited beheading and execution. As I read his biography, I remember being severely impacted by the flourishing of his ministry, the, the faithfulness of his life. And as he was arrested and taken off and sentenced to death and beheaded, I remember in my heart saying, but God, weren't you watching this? Didn't you see who this was and this faithfulness? Why would you take him out? There were a lot of other people at the time who, who probably should have been taken out to allow for this kind of preaching and this kind of ministry. This raises the question of why do bad things happen to supposedly good people? You know the book by Harold Kushner, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which deals with the same subject but with the wrong conclusions, called theodicy. Not theology, but theodicy. Theodicy is a theological term that wrestles with the problem of evil. And it basically goes like this. Let's go to philosophy class for a moment. There are three propositions. You can have two propositions, the philosophers say, but you can't have all three. What are those three? God is good. Number two, God is sovereign, in control of everything. Number three, evil exists. Now, the philosophers would tell us that you can have a good God, but a God who's not in control, that's why evil exists. Makes sense. Or you can have a God who's not good, 
but who's in control, and that explains why evil exists. Or you can do what the Christian scientists do. You can say that God is good, God is sovereign, and evil doesn't exist. I've always wanted to just punch one of those guys in the nose and say, then what was that? (laughs) Might need to edit the tape on that. (laughs) The problem with that syllogism, the problem with that formula is it's incomplete. There's a number four. God is infinitely wise. In the distribution of his goodness, the reign of his sovereignty, and the exercise of his greatness over the existence of evil. That's what the book of Lamentations wrestles with. A little background, Jeremiah has been preaching for four decades. Think about this. Four decades, Jeremiah, the great prophet, preaching for 40 years without a single convert. Warning of the coming judgment. Warning that the Babylonians were were on the lurk. Warning that they had spoken and announced and warned the people they were going to come and take over Jerusalem. Jeremiah kept saying, repent or be judged. Repent or be judged. Repent or be judged. Over and over every day as we heard in this text. He became a laughingstock. They made up songs about him. Mocking songs. Then it happened in 587, Babylon, Babylonian armies invaded the city of God, ransacked the architecture, took over the temple, destroyed, burned it to the ground. Lamentations really is the saddest book in the Bible. The book of Jeremiah were all the warnings that looked ahead. The book of Lamentation is the mourning that looks back. A lesser man would have said, I told you so. You're getting exactly what God promised, not Jeremiah. He goes up on a hill, perhaps the Mount of Olives, looks down over Jerusalem as it's burning and composes five poems lamenting his own personal sin identified with the people's sin that caused the judgment of God to come on Israel. If you read Lamentations, you find the tender side of a fiery prophet. The heart of a man divinely commissioned to speak a difficult, hard lesson to a stiff-necked people who wouldn't listen. Lamentations is interesting to me because you find out probably the most emotionally autobiographical understanding of a prophet more than anyone in Scripture. The structure of this book is very interesting. There are five poems, and the middle poem is his own personal lament. And in the middle of that poem is the Mount Everest of the Himalayas that are these poems. And at the top are three simple questions. Everything in this book pushes to these three questions, and everything after this book flows from these three questions. These three questions are verses 37, 38, and 39. Now these, if I can speak to the men for a minute, you'll understand this better than the women who use this all the time naturally. These are not questions. These are statements in the form of a question. Ladies do this all the time. It goes like this. Rick, are you going to wear that tie with that suit? That's not a question. It's a statement. Change ties. Rick, you're not going to spend that money on that, are you? It's not a question. That is, don't spend that money, knucklehead. Women use this all the time. Men aren't intelligent to quite get into the flow of that. We just listen and try to learn. 
Three questions, just like that. Not questions, but statements. Statements of profound theology that become the proper responses of a believer in the midst of difficulty. These are the questions that he asks and answers in the question itself for his own heart as he's struggling with this evil he's watching unfold before his eyes. And I think in looking at that, we can find great hope for ourselves. As we look at these three questions, I want to discover with you three theological reminders for a believer when facing a difficulty. Three theological reminders for a believer when facing a difficulty. The first reminder is in verse 37 in the first question. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? First reminder, God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over people. Now, for those of us experiencing evil from someone, this is particularly relevant. Let's go back and get our feet dusty in the dust around Jerusalem at the time. The Babylonians had said, spoken, warned, prophesied themselves. Also, Jeremiah had warned with his lips that they would come and destroy Jerusalem. That's exactly what they'd done. And they were quite proud about it. They, they wrote uh, uh, documents that we still have extant. We are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. We destroyed Jerusalem, and this is all of our plunder. It looked on the human level like they spoke, it happened, and they were in control because they had told the people that would happen, did it themselves. Surely they had power to speak and let it come to pass. Jeremiah adds a theological footnote to that, however. He says, who can speak and it come to pass unless the Lord himself has commanded it? The words and actions of people are the direction of this first question. Point being, no one can act then or now. No one can act in your life without the sovereign command of Almighty God. God has never one time said, whoops. He never misses a scene. He knows everything. In fact, more than knowing everything, he actually commands and allows what we perceive as those difficult people in our life. That is more than likely the hand of God in the glove of that person who is such an irritant to work his glory and our good. Now, this does not mean in any way that God is in any degree responsible for their sin or any sin whatsoever. But when sin is involved, he can still use it for his good pleasure and our good, even for his own glory. Joseph said in chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis, about his brothers who plotted against him, you meant this for evil, and they did. But how's he finish it? But God meant it for good. God was behind even the evil intention of these people in Joseph's life. This verse is really the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. God causes all things, not some things, not a few things, not good things. God causes all things to work together for what? For what? For good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
No one can say or do anything to us or in our lives that God does not ordain, that God does not allow. And that can bring hope for a believer, but it would bring despair for someone who doesn't know the Savior. No one's doing anything to us that God doesn't know about and that God hasn't commanded to happen. Jeremiah was seeing the women of Judah raped, the men murdered, others taken off, children killed in the streets. And he still says, God's sovereignty didn't take a vacation. We'll focus that in just a moment. There's a second theological reminder in the second question. God's sovereign over people. Secondly, God is sovereign over circumstances. God's sovereign over circumstances. Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the most high that both good and ill go forth? Good and ill. We find that in the lips of Job. Shall we not accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity, ill, same word, evil, is his response to all that happened to him in Job chapter one? This is not moral evil, moral ill, it's calamity, it's bad circumstances, it's disasters, it's consequences that we don't understand the causes of. God is in control of every circumstance, every molecule. One theologian says there is no such thing as a renegade molecule in God's universe. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Heaven and earth and the seas, all the deeps. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. I had a friend uh, I grew up with, played baseball with as an elementary school teacher, uh, elementary school kid and high schooler. We were in chemistry lab together and lived down the street from me named Greg. He... He actually uh, had a girlfriend who became his fiancée who was killed in a traffic accident. A drunk driver hit her head on six days before their wedding. He ended up, nine months later, getting engaged to her best friend, a few months later getting married. Six weeks after they had um, been married, he got a headache that wouldn't go away and they discovered terminal brain cancer. I flew from where I was in Los Angeles to see my friend Greg we spent a few hours together and then he asked his wife and family if they would leave so he, we could talk for a few minutes before I left the room. And, you know, I'm the pastor, I'm the theologian, I'm supposed to have this understanding down, right? And he looked at me with his head still bandaged from where they had taken out that initial tumor and he said, Rick, is God in control of the cancer cells in my brain? What do you say? I mean, what, what am I supposed to say? no. That's not a good answer. Yes, that's a painful answer. What am I going to tell him? And I finally just said, yeah, you know what, Greg? He's in control of every molecule, not just the cancer cells. He's in control of everything. I was expecting that to be heavy news for him, and I'll never forget what he did. He put his head back on that bed that was leaned up, and tears began to come out of his eyes. And I remember him saying, if God is in those cells then this is okay. Wish I could tell you the whole story. He, 
He died a year and a half later. His wife then married a man who had just recently lost her, his wife to breast cancer. And God continues this amazing saga in their lives. You have to make a choice. Is your God in control of everything or are there some things that God is not in control of? That's a, that's a frightening prospect, is it not? He's in control of even the birds that fall to the ground. Luke says that he's, records Jesus saying that he's in control of the hairs on our head. Not only, he has them numbered. The hairs of our head numbered. Not just knows how many they are. He has them numbered. So you're taking a shower and there goes 486 and 316. Now, granted, counting those and numbering those is a much easier task for some than it is for others for the Lord. He's in control of everything. That brings immeasurable comfort for a believer and is an immeasurable threat to an unbeliever. Look at verse 32. If he causes grief, if he causes grief, back to God, then he will have compassion. He's not a mean God up there throwing down lightning bolts, elbowing the angels and saying, watch this. According to his loving kindness, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Even when evil happens, it's not because God is wicked or evil. He's using it for our good. Finding that good is the mission of all of us. What should our response be to that? Now we find out our interaction. God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over circumstances. Number three, God is serious about our response. God is serious about our response. Verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint in view of his sins? Now, this is remarkable to me. Remember that Jeremiah is watching people who are being judged for sin they committed, that he prophesied, that he warned against. But instead of drilling down into their sin and telling them that they deserve it, he turns immediately to himself and says, no one can complain, even me. Read the whole first part of this chapter. I can't complain because I am being judged for my own sin. There is none righteous, not even one. Reminds me of Daniel 9 where... Daniel, in praying and thanking God for the return of the, Babel, of the people of Israel back to Babylon 70 years later, would confess his sin with the people. Jeremiah says, when, when difficulty comes, the natural response is to complain. And to complain about the circumstances and the people Jeremiah says, we have no right to complain about that because God has the only right to complain and it is about our sin. My wife's so sweet. She, she has a husband, my wife does, who it's her first husband, the one she still lives with, who is um, who's a complainer. I, I, I think I, I've written... I got patents on some complaining. I, I can do it so well, especially driving in Los Angeles traffic. Um, uh, and I remember her just last week. I was complaining. I, was, I mean, I was in the middle of a great complaint. Uh, it it was, um, had some momentum to it, and it was building up. My children in the car, and my wife just says, you know what, Rick? You're not going to hell. You should be happy about that. 
I was going to say that, but you beat me to it. I mean, there's nowhere to go with that. She's right. Randy Alcorn puts it like this in his book on heaven. Earth is an in-between world touched by heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into, into hell, affording a choice between the two. Listen to this. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell for Christians. This present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, this life is the closest they will ever come to heaven. Jeremiah is saying it's all about perspective. And perspective is shaped by theological truth. There's a little drill I go through in my head when difficulty happens. I was taught by a man long ago. Stop and say, what do I think? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? It's not usually very good. What do I think? It's okay. What do I know? Stop right there. I know my theology. That can dictate how I think and begin to affect how I feel. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Get to what you know and let that be the theological pillars that the word of God teaches us. Verse 40 says, let us examine our ways, probe our ways and return to the Lord. The rest of the chapter, the rest of this poem is dealing with self-cleansing and repentance. What kind of God do you have? The God of the Bible is the one we want to have and submit to. He's sovereign over time, history, kings, presidents, every detail in the vast universe, birds that fall, Satan himself, suffering, salvation, our sanctification, eternity, and our health. God is in sovereign control over it all. If he's not, I'm not sure I'm interested in that kind of God because the world is hopeless. You say, but you don't understand all the evil in my life. And you're right. But all of it comes into focus in John 19, 11. Pilate is talking to Jesus and he says, don't you understand, Jesus? I have the, the authority to let you go. If you'll give me the right answer, I can free you of this. And he did. And Jesus' answer is so telling. You would have no authority over me unless God himself had given it to you. That authority was about to put him on the cross. The greatest evil ever conceived and enacted in human history was an act of divine authority and oversight. And for that, we should forever be singing praises to the Lamb. There's no telescope that can discover an area of the universe where God is not in sovereign control and no microscope that can uncover a section of the atom where God's not in sovereign control. God's sovereignty is either your sweetest comfort or your worst nightmare. When Christopher Love was arrested and taken to prison, he left those two little children and his wife who was in her third trimester. He was about to leave orphans and widows. And the night before his execution, his wife wrote him a letter. What I find amazing, seeing him about to be beheaded unjustly after having been faithful in the cause of Christ, 
What I find interesting about what she says in her letter is her accent, her obvious emotional theological accent on the sovereignty of God. It's a few paragraphs, but I think it's worth listening to. Let me read it for you. It's in Old English, but I think you'll get the gist. July 14th, 1651, eight months pregnant with their third child, Mary Love wrote her husband, Christopher, and said this. Before I write a word further, I beseech thee, think not this is thy wife, but a friend now who writes thee. I I hope thou hast freely given up thy wife and children to God, who hath said in Jeremiah 49, 11, leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive and let thy widow trust in me. Thy maker will be my husband and a father to thy children. Oh, that the Lord would keep thee from having one troubled thought for thy relations, thy family. I desire to freely give thee up into the Father's hands and not only to look upon it as a crown of glory for thee to die for Christ, but as an honor for me that I should have a husband who leaves for Christ. I dare not speak to thee or have a thought within my own heart of my unspeakable loss but wholly keep my eyes fixed on thy inexpressible and thy inconceivable gain. Thou leavest but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. Thou leavest but children, brothers and sisters to go to the Lord Jesus, thy eldest brother. Thou leavest friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in glory. Thou dost but leave earth for heaven and changest a prison for a palace. And if natural affections should begin to arise within thee, I hope that the spirit of grace that's within thee will quell them knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above. I know thou keepest thine eye fixed on the hope of glory which makes thy feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know that God hath not only prepared glory for thee, but thee for it. But I am persuaded that he will sweeten the way for thee to come to the enjoyment of it. When thou art putting on thy clothes on that morning, oh, think, I'm now putting on my wedding garments to be everlastingly married to my Redeemer. When the messenger of death comes to thee, let him not seem dreadful, but look on him as a messenger that brings thee tidings of eternal life. And when thou goest up the scaffold, think, as thou saidest to me, that it is but a fiery chariot to take thee up to thy father's house. And when thou layest down thy head to receive thy father's stroke, remember what thou saidest to me. Though my head was severed from my body, Yet in that moment, my soul should be united to thy head, the Lord Jesus Christ, in heaven. And though it may seem bitter that by the hands of men we are parted, a little sooner than otherwise we might have been, 
Yet let us consider that it is the decree and the will of our Father, and it will not be long ere we shall enjoy one another again in heaven. Let us comfort one another with these things. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, a little stroke, and thou shalt be where the weary shall be at rest and the wicked shall cease from troubling. Remember that thou mayest eat thy dinner with bitter herbs, yet thou will have a sweet supper tomorrow night with Christ. My dear, by what I write unto thee, I do not hereby undertake to teach thee, for these comforts I receive from the Lord by thee. I will write thee no more, nor trouble thee any further, but commit thee into the arms of God with whom ere long thee and I shall be. Farewell, my dear. I shall not see thy face until we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus on that great day, Mary. To see an executioner's acts as our father's stroke reflects a woman whose life was so directed in the trajectory of trusting the sovereignty of God that even in her greatest moment and trial with that baby kicking in her womb, still she held on to what she knew was true. My prayer is that Lamentations 3 will give you great reason to hope. Can we pray together? Our Father, we... We're humbled by the faith and trust of this precious saint who has given us an example of seeing your sovereignty as sweet, comforting, whose view of heaven, view of hell, made changes and differences in her perspective. Lord, teach us to trust your sovereignty over people, to trust your sovereignty over circumstances, and to deal with our sin at the cross. Those who are here who don't know you, oh, Father, woo them to your Son by showing them the beauty of forgiveness and righteousness had in faith placed in in the precious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need perspective because what we feel is distrusted. What we think is not always trustworthy. Teach us to live on what we know for the glory of the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.